Uh, years ago, I visited a church in Indiana. Uh, when the time came that morning to collect the offering, the pastor of the church jumped onto the stage and pulled a wad of cash out of his pocket. And then he ran back and forth, up and down the stage, waving the cash in the air, and then he slam dunked it into the offering box, and the place erupted in applause. Sweet mercy. <laughs> Another story, but a little more subtle, it actually helps to set the tone of our passage this morning. While I was on a road trip years ago, the woman who was driving gave me a detailed play-by-play of a 40-day fast she had once completed. As she described for me all of the meals and the snacks and the things she had provided for her family, and as she described all the willpower that it took for her to uphold her fast and to not give in, I couldn't help but feel that she was trying to impress me. The story felt a little self-congratulating. Now look, I am not innocent of this. Uh, If we're honest with ourselves, and that's critical that we be honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all taken something that was intended to draw our attention to God, whether giving or or prayer, or fasting, or serving of, of some form. We've, we've all taken something that was meant to draw our attention to God, and we've used it to draw attention to ourselves. We've, we've hijacked an act of faith and obedience. The Jews surrounding Jesus during his Sermon on the Mount were doing this. Uh, they were diligent uh, in their giving, their almsgiving to the poor. They were diligent in their prayer lives and they were diligent to fast, to abstain from food or water. We'll talk about that in a minute, but but here's the point. For the Jews, their giving, their praying, and their fasting had become far less about glorifying God and far more about glorifying themselves. The idea was to be seen doing these things and to, and to have questions arise in people's minds. Do you, do you see how much money she gives every time she passes that poor man on the street? She is really devout. Do you hear how often that man prays and how eloquently he prays? He is so spiritual. Do you notice how slowly she walks? It's because she's fasting again. I wish I were half as righteous as her. In today's segment of the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be examining, Jesus addresses this issue, right? Now, he doesn't tell the Jews and he doesn't tell us to stop giving and to stop praying and to stop fasting. Those are good and God-glorifying and edifying acts of obedience. Jesus doesn't tell them to stop doing those things. Instead, he urges them to strongly check their motives when they do those things. If, if we can remember, uh, we've been in the, in the Sermon on the Mount for a, a little while now, 10 weeks, I believe, and if you can remember with me back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples and us that our acts of obedience to God 
should be seen by others, but not that we would be praised, that God would be praised. When we perform any act of obedience to God, now this morning, giving and, and praying and fasting are, are in purview here, but, but insert there, any act of, of faith and, and love toward God and obedience toward God, when we perform any act of obedience to God, giving, praying, fasting, serving, hosting, leading, teaching, our motives are what God weighs. Our motives actually determine the validity of our obedience. It's entirely possible to do something that God's word commands to be done for entirely the wrong reason and nullify the obedience. So the question, are we doing the right things for the right reason? Or are we doing the right things for the wrong reason? reasons, our motives are not only seen by our gracious God, our motives matter to him. And so they should matter greatly to us. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter six. Now here's a heads up. We're going to examine a few more verses than I had originally planned. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter six, verses one through six and verses 16 through 18. We'll notice here in a minute, these sections are tied together by a common thread. Now between the sections we're gonna be looking at this morning, in verses seven through 15, Jesus expounds upon the topic of prayer. I can't wait, Lord willing, to dive into that next week, but here's what we need to see. The whole first half of chapter six, from verse one through verse 18, is tied together by one common theme, and that theme is an overarching warning. Beware of your motives. In the previous segment of this sermon, we've just come out of what's called the six antitheses, when Jesus confronts the Jews for doing the wrong things instead of the right things, and now he's gonna slightly adjust his focus, and he's gonna urge them and us to do the right and godly things for right and godly reasons, okay? So let's read. I'd invite you to follow along. I'll start in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll jump down to uh, 16 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your father, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door 
and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jump down with me to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I need to and want to plead your forgiveness right out of the gate. For so often, my motives are mixed. For so often, even in something that is intended to be so God-glorifying as preaching your word, so often I'm thinking, hmm, but how is this making me look? Please forgive me. I mean that sincerely. If my brothers and sisters can, if they're already feeling convicted by your Holy Spirit, that is a gracious thing. That is a sign to us that we have been changed at the heart level. And Lord, what we desire is to be taught by your word, to be conformed to your word for your glory and our good and godly and joyful life. We pray that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. The warning that Jesus issues right in verse one is the warning that pervades this whole passage. I'll read it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen, in order to be celebrated by them. When you seek the applause of men, Jesus explains, you're not only hijacking the humble joy of the good godly life, you are forfeiting your heavenly reward. Now, before we move on, it'll help us to know at this time, in history, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Hippocrates were play actors in the Greek and Roman theaters. Hippocrates, or hypocrites, would wear masks on stage and they would pre pretend to be characters in front of large audiences and their hope, their aim, their desire was to receive standing ovations for their performances. For the Jews, whom Jesus is addressing in these words, a hypocrite described a person who pretended to be something they weren't in order to be applauded. Now, knowing this should help us to better understand and navigate verses 2 and 5 and 16 of our passage. His, Jesus' consistent warning in those verses should be as clear as they are convicting don't be a hypocrite, hypocrite. Don't be a performer or a play actor when you give. Don't be a pretender when you pray. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a theater actor when you fast and hope to get applauded. And so for the remainder of our time, we'll break this three-part warning down to, to three applicable 
warnings. If you're a note taker, here we go. Point number one, watch your motives when you give. Number two, watch your motives when you pray. And number three, watch your motives when you fast. So for the remainder of our time, we'll be underneath those points. Point number one, church, watch your motives when you give. In verses two, three, and four, Jesus explains how hypocrites, well, they like to make a spectacle out of their generosity. They wait for the service trumpet that would be blown outside of the synagogue. They wait for it to be blown and they wait for all the people to come out into the streets and be gathered together. And then they conveniently and strategically take their offering to the offering box or they stop in front of all the beggars that are on the streets and they give purposefully and intentionally when the crowd is out. Hypocrites appear to be generous, but their giving, now listen to this, their giving is not selfless, it is selfish because their giving is motivated by getting recognition, respect, and applause. Now I don't know the pastor of that church in Indiana, but his giving bought him a standing ovation that morning. And if that was his goal, it certainly seemed to be his goal, well then, that fleeting moment of earthly applause was his reward. That is it. As Jesus makes soberingly clear in the second half of verse two, Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. People who are theatrically generous are no different than play actors. They get the applause they want for a fleeting moment, and then that's it until the next performance. When the curtain closes, so does their reward. Now, the heart-level questions that you and I should be asking ourselves are numerous. Firstly, do you and I even give uh, to the needy, to mission, to the church? Because the assumption for Jesus in verse two is that, well, if we are his followers, we will be generous givers. Look at what he says. When you give, he doesn't say if you give, when you get around to it? No, no, no. When you do, because you're going to do it. When you do, do you give of your, of your money? And let's expand this a little bit, your, your time and your service. Do you give of those things or do you not even at all? I mean, there's wave one of conviction as God's people. God is so generous a giver. And like father, like son, and like father, like daughter, we are givers. Do you know how to tell if you're a slave to your money or your calendar or your own self-interest? You'll know this. You'll know that you're a slave to those things if you don't give. If the pattern of your life is hoarding of your time and money and you're not interested in serving other people and you're not even interested in others' interests. Instead, your life is patterned by hoarding. That's actually how you know that you're enslaved to those things. 
but oh, that we would behold the blessing of giving. I mean, that we would behold the truthfulness of Jesus' words that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive, and he embodied that through and through. And oh, that we would be struck and that we would be invited into the riches of generosity toward one another, toward our neighbor, toward our community, toward other churches. A second question that we should be asking ourselves when we give, when we serve, when we give alms to the poor, when we give to our church, when we serve and give of our time, do we secretly hope that it gains some recognition for us? Like the hypocrites in Jesus' view, do we purposefully wait to stop by the offering box until the room is full and we can just kind of, no, just make it obvious. Let's see this check. I'm just bringing it back here. Don't mind me. Now look, someone is going to see you at the offering box. Someone is going to see me serving right now. I'm doing it right now. Somebody is going to see you serving in the children's uh, classroom or vacuuming the schoolhouse after our gathering. We can't avoid, nor should we always avoid just being seen at all costs. But where are our motives right now and when we do these things? Oh Lord, redeem our motives. Save us if you are particularly tempted and you want to be celebrated when you serve or when you give, Jesus has some really helpful words in, in verse three and I think that it's not only to those who are particularly tempted to be self-glorifying, but I think it's good in general. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Be so committed to the to the secret agency of serving God that, in fact, the other part of you isn't even aware of how much you gave, <laughs> right? I see a lot of this here at Oaks. Man, I love this church. I, I mean, every single week, there are men and women who are cleaning up the nurseries, cleaning up our hallways and the kitchen area and the cafe area, and really, unthanked in large measure. Lifting the chairs, vacuum up, everybody leaves and they're still taking the trash out. Just volunteers every week, week in, week out. And man, talk about, that's really kind of an unthanked way to, uh, a not commonly thanked way to serve and so many of you do it and I'm so thankful to be in a family with you. What wonderful examples. I was Previously, have previously been involved in a church when one of the pastors of the church, he would not lift a finger if even there was a need of something spilling or anything. He just wouldn't. It was beneath him. Never let that be the case with us, Lord. And the reward, sweet mercy, what could be actually better than having the Father the holder of all things, the creator of heaven and earth, look at you. Mm. I see you and I'm proud of you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, 
Our Father has mysterious ways of giving reward within time, but then also the, the big one, eternity. Have you ever seen, this isn't actually a question, so I'll say it this way. Maybe you've seen the movie Wonder. Uh, it's by Walden Media. And toward the end of it, uh, there's, there's this girl. She's the sister in this family. She's always serving behind the scenes and going unnoticed. And there's this one scene where her mom, her mom knows everything that she does behind the scenes. And she just looks at her and she goes, she just gives her a point. You, I love you. Thank you. It's a moving scene, and if we could get that in our minds and in our hearts, what reward is better? What reward can we even fathom that, that trumps having the Father look and say, you, I saw that in secret. Well done, well done. Oh man, to be like that and to taste that regularly, Lord, help us. Number two, watch your motives when you pray. In verses five and six, Jesus, of course, issues the same warning he did with giving, but this time it pertains to prayer. When it comes to prayer, the synagogues and the street corners had become as much of a stage for performances as the theaters. And Jesus warns, don't be hypocrites. Hypocrites. Don't put on your makeup and your masks and put on your clothes to perform like a street actor. Do not like hypocrites, don't stand in the most visible places praying loudly and lengthily for the purpose of getting compliments for yourself rather than for the purpose of communing with your heavenly father. Now, it begs the question, to be, what on earth had God's people come to that Jesus needs to warn them, don't pray as a ploy to earn men's praise? And what on earth have we come to and have I come to that this warning is necessary? Prayer is the blessed vehicle by which we are reoriented and refocused on God. Prayer is when we seek and speak to he who has so graciously made us and saved us and spoken to us in his word. And when we pray, he listens. He listens. How on earth could I hijack so simple and so wonderful a gift and then use it for my own glory? And I have done this. I am guilty. I'm as guilty as many of the Jews were. The heart questions we should be asking again are numerous. Firstly, do you and I even pray? Do we have a prayer life? We do when we're together on Sundays and Wednesdays in our community groups, and that's wonderful. But once again, Jesus' assumption in verse 5 is that as his followers, we will be fervent in prayer. He says once again, when you pray, not if, when. And so I'll ask you the question that stings me by the Holy Spirit. What are your private prayers like? Are they as passionate, as eloquent, and as lengthy as your prayers are when you are in front of other people? Uh, 
D.A. Carson comments, the person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is more interested in human praise than God's. Oh, man. Lord, forgive me. If this is an unrelenting temptation for you to pray as a way of gaining celebration of men, either by the length of your prayers or the eloquence of your prayers or the frequency of your prayers, if this is an unrelenting temptation, here's what Jesus tells us to do, and this would be great for each of us to do anyway. Hide often when you pray. Get out of sight. Go into your room, into your office, into your basement, and close the door behind you because guess what? Your heavenly Father is there waiting for you and he hears you. Oh Lord, strike a chord and nurture in us, foster in us a burning desire to pray, to communicate with you. He's already communicated brilliantly and perfectly right here. We get to open it and respond. And the reward, oh, you. I see you there in secret, my servant. Good and faithful servant, well done. Oh, I just... Lord, help us to to be enamored with hearing that response from you, both at the end of days and just today. Number three, watch your motives when you fast. In verses 16 through 18, Jesus adds one final aspect to this consistent warning. Don't be like the theatrical performers who, in order to draw attention to themselves, they put on a somber face and they neglect their hygiene when they fast. You'll know when you see them. You'll know when you see them. They mess up their hair. They let their faces get dirty. They don't put their oil face lotions on. They walk around with slumped shoulders, hoping that you'll acknowledge their devotion to God with a round of applause, a golfer's clap. Oh, look at how weak he is. He's fasting again. Fasting is another blessed spiritual discipline prescribed in a myriad of biblical passages. To fast is to abstain from eating or drinking or even uh, in some scriptures, even marital sex for a period of time in order to more fully give our attention to prayer and or to mourning and or to repentance. When we fast from food, The groanings of our stomachs illuminate for us the groanings of our souls. And we are reminded, oh, we must depend on God even more than we depend on food. He is our life and our bread and our sustenance. Now, here is where I am most convicted is that Jesus says, when you fast in verse 16, I have not fasted for a long time. Do you fast? Do we even fast? Implied, explicit is when you fast, when you give up 
for a period of time, food, maybe 24 hours, you give up food and you worshipfully listen to the groanings of your stomach and let that then conjure up in you praise that, oh, even more than the groanings of my stomach, my soul, my soul groans for you and you are my satisfier. Learning to depend on God throughout a day with no food and learning to delight in him despite no food is also learning to demonstrate him and his pure goodness for his glory and not for ours. Here's a question for you that might uh, invigorate a heart that, that understands, I, I need to fast again. Are you weary, church? Are you wandering? Are you anxious about things? Does your delight in God and your dependence on God need a boost? Do you need bolstered? It's paradoxical. It almost feels contradictory. Do you need energized? Then maybe don't eat for a day this week and trust the supernatural supply of God to bring new life to your weak knees and to lift your head. And all the while, while you feel weak in your fast, for however long it lasts, remember Psalm 3:3, one of my favorites, but you, O Lord, are my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I don't need anything on this earth but you. But when you do, and when I fast, when we fast, and maybe uh, the city of Worcester will go through like a stockpile of food this week because Oaks Church is gonna fast, right? And none of us are gonna, no, no, I hope not. Well, I mean, I don't know what the Lord will do with this, but the point is when we fast, what's Jesus' point? Clean yourself up, brother. Wash your face Walk uprightly with firm shoulders in the strength of the Lord. Let your fast draw you into communion with your heavenly Father and don't let your fast, and you can obey this and so can I because we've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit to actually obey what would be impossible without him. Don't let your fast become your occasion for feasting on the praises of people. Actually fast. Chris, actually fast and relish in the sustenance and the provision of God. And once again, a heavenly reward. To do it in secret, man. We should all be ninjas in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting, total ninjas. And then we get, you know, it, the eye of the Father is on our motives. And when he looks down and sees righteous goodness imputed to us by Jesus, and we're actually obeying, not for wrong reasons, but right reasons. Oh my goodness. Well done, good and faithful servant. I see you. I see you. And you're mine. Oh Lord. So three times in this passage, Jesus warns his disciples. He warns the crowd of Jews. He warns us against practicing our righteousness in order to be seen and celebrated. Because he knows that each of us in our own way, we long to be seen, don't we? We long to feel adequate. We long to feel devoted and be seen as devoted. 
I was speaking with a brother this week about this passage. He had a comment. He's here this morning. Uh, Each of us knows we are inadequate. We all feel inadequate. And that might very well be the motive that we bring to the table when we do these things. We just want to be somebody. We want to be seen. We want to be adequate. And isn't that feeling of inadequacy what what are what, what reasons us and pushes us to, to gain some sort of temporal feeling of adequacy, right? I, I don't feel like I'm that significant and so therefore I'm gonna do this so that I'm seen as significant and I'm applauded. I just wanna tell you what this brother told me, reminded me in my office this week. Look, church, it's not only okay, it's wonderful when we feel inadequate. The gospel rests in this posture right here when we feel like we're not making the cut, when we feel that we aren't measuring up. This is what we repentantly celebrate when we take of the bread and of the cup of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? When we come up and when we enjoy this sensory meal, when we taste the bread in our mouth, we remember as real as the bread is in our mouth, so real is this fact, the Son of God, high and lifted up, the most significant, most adequate. He came to this earth and was emptied of those things, giving up his body for us on the cross that we might have eternal life. As we taste in this sensory meal the bitter sweetness of the juice, remember the sweetness of having your sin, my sin, absolved, forgiven, paid for. It came at a bitter cost to Jesus. He poured out his blood for us. Talk about significance. Oh, in this, while we were still sinners, dead in our transgressions, the Father regarded us as, you know what? I'm gonna send my perfect son who knew no sin to become as your sin on the cross to die so that you would become my righteousness. You, I want you. In all of your wondrous inadequacy, And remember the inadequacy that many of us, maybe even this morning, are feeling. Gosh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who go, oh, I don't measure up. I have nothing. I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to give to you and no way that I can even sweeten this deal for you. I am a beggar. And Jesus says, yep, right there, you are mine. As we partake of the Lord's Supper together, and I'm wrapping up right now, as a fellowship of believers, Paul gives tremendous instruction on how to take of the Lord's Supper. We need to be self-examining, okay? And not from a legalistic standpoint, That accusation floats around a lot these days. It's really good when we ask ourselves tough questions as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper. Lord, what sins am I entertaining? What sins should I be forsaking? What sins are in my blind spots? In what ways am I so hungry to be significant in the eyes of people? I just need to to repent as I come to the table. Am I, am I striving to obey your word, Lord, and to do so for right reason? Am I sacrificially loving my wife? Am I submissively loving my husband? The Lord's Supper is for 
this. Now hear this, this makes Oaks a little distinct at times. The Lord's Supper is for men and women who are capable of this kind of introspection and self-examination. So if you're capable, if your kid is capable of introspection and self-examination, if you are capable, then after I pray, let's repentantly and in great celebration come to the table together as we partake of the bread and the cup, the body of blood, a body of Christ, the blood of Christ poured out to save people who are so consumed with their own self-significance to remove our blinders, to convict us in our hearts, and to lead us to repentance. It is finished. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Hallelujah. As I pray, I'm gonna invite those who are serving communion to come forward, and Ed is gonna come forward and lead us in singing, and process, self-examine, and if you're capable of those things, come forward whenever you're ready to take of this good news sensory meal. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, I really, I really uh, am convicted at the number of times in my life when I have just mixed motives of doing things that please you, there is a part of me, Lord, because of your grace that I actually do. I want to obey you. I want to bring you pleasure. But also in the other hand, Lord, I want to take some glory for myself. I do want to be praised and applauded. I do want to be deeply respected. I do want to be accepted. All these things, Lord, it is such a a mixed cocktail of motives that I bring in almost everything I do. And if my brothers and sisters relate, Lord, once again, I just plead with you for forgiveness. And I plead with you that we wouldn't just acknowledge this with our words, but that, Lord, you would grant to us actual repentance to turn, to take up our mats and to walk and to sin no more, Lord, that we would be God-oriented, God-focused, God-minded in all of our acts of faith and righteousness and obedience, things that you have prescribed that we do in your word. Lord, let us do them and let us do them that you may be seen and savored and glorified by those who see us. Please give to us that level of authenticity here at this church and every other church in Worcester who professes the risen righteous name of Christ. Lord, would you do a revival would you do a work here in Worcester where churches from the inside out are transformed in honest, vulnerable transparency, Lord, that we would operate with this goal that you would be seen and savored and glorified and that we, Lord, would taste and behold the good godly life getting to reflect you in that way. Lord, lead us to repentance as we partake. Lead us into celebration as we partake of the bread and the cup, this sensory gospel meal that reminds us there is no condemnation for those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you raised him from the dead. Lord, we are yours. And all of our ways are known to you. 
and you are wonderful. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.